I love bundles cause they love me so much And I love bundles cause you know they're gonna touch my soul You know That was my bundle song, Whitney, because I'm excited about this new vegan bundle we're a part of. So I had to sing it. I was really hoping that you were going to rhyme like bundle with trundle or like some crazy words like you do, like when you rhymed purple with derple. I like it when you do zany things like that. And I appreciate you making this fun because this is our intro for an announcement we have about participating in the plant-based bundle this year which is happening for a limited time, we decided to submit our course, The Consistency Code, to this incredible bundle sale, mainly because we wanted to remind you that we have a course called The Consistency Code in case you missed that when we launched it in 2019. It's one of the favorite, our favorite projects that we've ever worked on. And normally it's $197 that you can now get it for just $50 And in addition to enrolling in the consistency code, you also get over 60 ebooks and other programs related to plant-based living, to fitness, including recipes, meal plans. It's really great. We made it super easy for you to check it out. It's at bundle.wellevator.com, which is spelled B-U-N-D-L-E dot W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. If that's too long for you to remember, we don't blame you. We'll be sure to put it in the show notes of this episode, which you can easily find by going to wellevator.com. Again, that's spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. We'll tell you more about the consistency code later on in this episode, but we wanted to dive right in. So let's get started with this amazing show we have for you today. It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson. Our guest today is somebody that I met during a podcast networking group. And it was just such a a sweet connection that we built because we kept being drawn to the same like little breakout groups that we were doing. And it was a really neat experience, actually. It's part of this collaborative that I've joined to find more guests and to explore other podcasts to be on their shows. And they did this virtual networking. I was sitting in my car during this session that we did. And it was really a unique experience in which you virtually went to these tables and connected with like-minded people. And I think there might have been three breakouts. And I know at least two, if not all three of them, Colleen, our guest today, was in them. <laughs> and then she followed up with me afterwards and said, hey, we're I'm that girl that you kept bumping into virtually at these tables. And I don't know, it's just so sweet when you have those experiences with someone. And that one in particular, I thought was really interesting because it felt to me almost like the same experience of being at an actual in-person conference. Did you get that feeling at all, Colleen? 
A little bit. I mean, it's definitely a different experience on that platform, Airmeet, but it was really nice just to have this the small group and and then keep bumping into you. Yeah, and it's like such a nice way to bond when you're naturally attracted to somebody when you're not even intending to be. It actually reminds me of a story I haven't thought about in a while. When I was in my first week of college, that happened to me with a guy who ended up becoming a friend of mine. And we even like kind of played around with maybe dating, but it never really worked out. We just ended up being friends and he's been you know, an acquaintance ever since. But my first, maybe even my first day of college, that happened to us. And we would always laugh like little kids every time we ran into each other. And gosh, just like having this conversation with you, Colleen, makes me want to go reconnect and check in on him because it's been many years. And it's amazing how just those little moments of like natural connection can lead to you being a podcast guest or someone becoming a friend or even dating someone. And I love that magical connection. It also reminds me of how Jason met his girlfriend. (laughs) It wasn't quite the exact thing because you, Jason, didn't keep bumping into Laura. But you had what they would call in a romantic movie, a meet cute, where you guys like weren't intending on meeting that day. And then now suddenly you're in this full-blown relationship. Yeah, I think it just goes to show you there's like a certain amount of serendipity and magic and unexpected surprises that life can bestow upon us, right? And I think during this time that it seems almost like, for me, I've been picking up on this energy of like, just it's time to survive. It's not time to dream anymore. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, magic and serendipity and manifestation and all that stuff. But it seems to me there's kind of like this interesting energy. I know this is maybe an offshoot of this, but it seems like, how do I even say this? Not dangerous, but it seems strange to like dream right now, if that makes any sense. And I kind of want to throw this to you, Colleen. It's in my research of really looking at your wonderful perspectives and your coaching work and everything you're doing with Inspired Forward, I landed on an article that really clobbered me that you wrote on Medium. And I've seen some really uh, great articles you've written there. But the article that really knocked me out this morning was how to achieve an impossible goal. And as I was reading through this article, Colleen, I would love for your perspectives on this. I realized that like, I'm playing it really safe right now in a lot of ways. Like I've really stopped reaching for certain dreams and certain goals because I feel like the best thing to do right now is quote, survive. And maybe through the pandemic and everything that's happening globally, I feel like almost like I've shrunk in my energy a little bit to like stay safe. And I'm curious if you're seeing that with the people you're working with or you're seeing people that are hesitant to like go after big dreams right now because maybe it feels irresponsible. This is a huge question. I just wanted to throw it to you and kind of see what your perspective's on like, yeah, how do we strive for things when maybe things seem so dire sometimes in life? Oh, man, that one is, yeah, that is a big question. So The concept of an impossible goal is something I got from Brooke Castillo. She's one of my coaches. She runs the Life Coach School. And a lot of people don't want to go big right now. They're curling up, kind of hiding at home because the future is uncertain. The election is uncertain. COVID is uncertain. But a lot of people forget that everything in the future is uncertain. We don't know if we're going to wake up tomorrow. We just live like we're going to. 
So when people kind of shove their goals away because they want to survive instead of thrive, they're basically just shooting themselves in the foot. So I've been seeing this a lot with with people who want to who want to coach, who want to change their lives. They feel scared because it's uncertain, but it's always going to be uncertain. How do we help people get out of the Whitney and I talk about the collective addiction to certainty. We've been actually mentioning that phrase on several episodes. And I, I love it because I think in many ways it is almost an addiction of this this desire for safety and security if we have some sort of predictability or control over the future. So what do you, what do you tell people? I mean, I guess this is a conversation for all three of us. I'm opening it up also to Whitney's perspective, of course, is that, you know, where do we gain the confidence to take another step? If we've been conditioned our entire lives to try and control things and predict things, and then, whoa, maybe we can't control and predict things as much, how do we re-landscape ourselves mentally to move forward in life if we don't have that, if that framework doesn't exist anymore? I think it has to do a lot with doing it scared. So we feel the fear, but do it anyway. I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. Whitney, feel free to jump in if you want. I can totally relate to having something that you want to express and like wanting to get the words right, you know, and actually in a way, doing it scared is, is fumbling through how you phrase something, even if it doesn't make any sense. This happens to me all the time. And I've actually learned to embrace that because for me, what comes up is for so long in my life, I was trying to do things right and this has been a huge theme. I haven't even really talked to you about this as much, Jason, but I recently made a few YouTube videos for the first time in a while. And Colleen or any of the listeners that didn't know this about me, I've made over a thousand easily YouTube videos across all my different channels, but maybe it's now closer to 2000. I don't know. I don't keep track of the numbers, but it's been a lot. And I haven't been doing as much in the last few years. So that gives some context. In the first probably five to seven years that I was on YouTube, I made all those videos that I'm referencing. And then I found myself getting scared, to your point, Colleen. And I really struggled doing it scared. And that's why I'm, I'm really curious about what you're going to say in this context, but as well as Jason's and then a general context. I struggled with doing things scared because I was really kind of dependent on external opinion, external validation, external feedback. And it mattered so much to me. It still does. I'm not, it's not like I've fully released that grasp. It's played such a huge role in my life that I had trouble doing anything unless I felt like I was going to get the approval of somebody else. It was like I was looking for permission to do whatever, express myself in a certain way. I was terrified and still feel a ton of fear expressing myself online. Even after doing content for over 10 years, I hesitate a lot. And then I also will post things and experience like a vulnerability hangover. It happened to me this morning, actually. I posted something on Instagram as well as a few videos in the past day. and. I had this intense fear in my body today of like, oh my gosh, like I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I posted that. Like this feels so scary. So I was doing it scared, but it was really hard. And it also helped me realize why I haven't posted as frequently because that fear was so incredibly intense, that fear of 
being seen as imperfect, even though I don't have control over perfection, even though I don't know who, if any person has ever perceived me as being perfect, my version of perfection got in the way of me showing up. And I'm curious how you relate to that. Like, how do you do things when you're scared? Do you experience this type of vulnerability fear, Colleen? I did. Well, I I did and I do. So I want to touch on something you said. You said that you, you were scared and you did it anyway, but then you experienced the vulnerability hangover because you're looking for permission and validation from other people. I want to like trace that back because one of the coaching things that I've learned is that all of our actions come from our feelings and all those feelings come from thoughts. So when you feel fear, but you do it anyway, that's called interrupting the model. So when you feel fear, you normally shut yourself away, you'll hide, you'll not post, you'll not make videos. But when we interrupt that model, and that means you feel the fear, you realize where it could go, but then you stop yourself from going there and you go you go somewhere else. So how I really deal with this is I acknowledge the fact that, yes, I'm scared. I acknowledge that this is probably going to hurt in some way, but then you do it anyway and you still feel it. So it's the willingness to feel any feeling. It's the willingness to push past that personal level of disgust, which is... That's that's how I like talking about my weight loss journey in particular, is I reached this personal level of disgust where I, I could not deal with it anymore. So at my highest weight, I was 225 pounds and I'm 5'8 for perspective. I had never been that, that heavy before. I have type 1 diabetes. And so I was also experiencing wild high blood sugars, really bad low blood sugars. And this one day in January of 2016, I had basically my worst day ever with my blood sugars. I had three different roller coasters where I was up to 400 and then down to like 40. And those are the these are really extreme levels of... A normal non-diabetic blood sugar is like 83 mgDL, which means milligrams of glucose per deciliter of blood. And I was ranging from 40 to 400, three different times. And the last crash took 300 grams of carbohydrate to pull me out. Because my liver, which dumps glycogen to bring up low blood sugars when, when you don't have diabetes, that was just, it was empty. So 300 grams of carbs pulled me out. And that was the moment, that was my personal level of disgust with my blood sugars and with my weight. And the very next day I went low carb, which is crazy for type 1 diabetics, about, at least back when I was researching it. The very next day, my blood sugars were perfect. And so a lot of the times when I'm going into difficult things or scary things, I think this is another personal level of disgust. And if I don't change it now, then I'm not going to change it in the future. So I have to think about what 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 thoughts do I want to think about what I'm going to do? How do I want to feel? What actions am I going to take? And if the thought isn't useful, then I need to find a new one. That's really what helped with at least the weight loss. How did you handle and how do you handle you know this concept of for lack of a better word, like a setback or an obstacle, or you're, perhaps you're trying to build consistency with certain habits. It's a big thing that we talk about here on the podcast and a lot of the work that we do, Colleen, is this concept of, of building frameworks of consistency and sustainable habits, things that actually work for us. You know, On your journey after you kind of hit this nadir, this low point, what did you do when I suppose the inevitable challenges or setbacks or certain days you didn't maybe 
feel like eating differently or adjusting things? Or, or was it smooth sailing for you the entire time? I don't want to assume you had any setbacks or challenges, but did you? And how do you get around those in life when they come up for you? So I love the graph for weight loss where it's, you think it's going to be a straight line down, but then it's actually, you go down and then you go up and then you go down and then you go up and then you go up and then you go back down, you go, go down and then up and then down again. I experienced a lot of that and I'm still experiencing that. I think I dropped really, really fast on my weight in the first several months. And then I plateaued and went back up again for another several months. So the first plateau and regain of weight was actually thanks to my father-in-law because he has fantastic cooking. And we were living with my in-laws at the time. But as soon as we got our own place and uh, started cooking our own food again, it was back to that point where I had to I had to change something because my weight was creeping back up and I didn't want it to. And it was another personal level of disgust thing where I reached this point where I just I couldn't do it anymore. And then for the next few times, it was going up and down. It's more... The more I step on the scale, the more I look at my weight and realize that day-to-day fluctuations don't really actually mean that much. What I care about is the month-to-month or week-to-week trends. So if the trend overall is going down, then I can see that and feel encouraged because I think it's working. The most recent plateau was about a year and a half I stayed right around 170, 175. And I reached another point where I'm like, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of feeling like I'm never going to lose this weight. And I ended up researching and doing an elimination diet. So I basically cut out everything that human beings love. And for three straight weeks, I had a salad with chicken and avocado and balsamic vinegar and olive oil, basically three weeks of bland salad, my weight started going down again. During that time, I was also following one of Brooke Castillo's weight loss plans, which is write down exactly what you're going to eat 24 hours in advance, and then you eat only in exactly that. It's about building integrity with yourself to follow through. And it's not always staying on the bandwagon. You're going to fall off at some points, although I don't really like saying you'll fall off the bandwagon because that implies there is a bandwagon. But when you miss a day, you're not breaking a habit. Have you guys heard of the Jerry Seinfeld thing where you cross off a day and just don't break the chain? Yeah. Uh-huh. So you can actually break the chain. Just don't do it twice, I think, twice or three times in a row. So if if you miss a day, you just get right back on. It's not going to mess you up. It's not going to break your habit. It's actually going to strengthen it because once you get back into it, you you're more likely to keep going. This is actually super helpful and um, ties into a course that we have called the Consistency Code. And, and we found that a lot of people aren't struggling with collecting information about what to do. Like most people know either intuitively or just logically based on what they're seeing other people do and books they've read. Like we have so much information But the bigger challenge that people have is being consistent with it. And we're huge proponents for accountability and having somebody to help you follow through or developing a system. And I think that's so helpful what you're saying, Colleen, because there is this mentality that if you break the chain, then you have to start all over again or that you want to beat yourself up because you missed a day or you screwed up. And I'm also a big advocate for doing something versus nothing. Like, perfect example is this week I have been kind of 
decompressing from a huge trip I, I came back from. I went on a road trip and visited my family for a few months. And coming back to Los Angeles, it was just this readjustment period. One of the things I've been struggling to adjust to is my fitness schedule. You know, I was actually really on top of it when I was visiting my family. I had no trouble doing it there. But for some reason, the week following my return to Los Angeles, I have zero motivation to work out and do my yoga classes. And I've been skipping them. I've been allowing myself to sleep in their morning classes. And I felt this like guilt creeping up in me. So today I decided that I was going to tune into the live Zoom class, but not put any pressure on myself to do any of the moves. (laughs) And part of me was like, gosh, like you should just do the class. You're overthinking it. But it felt actually much better to turn the class on and not do anything than the previous days where I didn't even turn it on at all. And it was like I was making a little bit of progress. I was just like cueing myself to get back in. I was pushing myself to do something. And I was reflecting on how much of a a difference it makes when we do something tiny versus nothing at all. Yeah, it's about building that integrity with yourself. So one of the things that you can do, especially for getting back into exercise, is tell yourself, I'm just going to put my shoes on. And that's all you do is that you put your shoes on. And then the next day, maybe you put your shoes on and you go outside. Maybe the day after that, you walk for a minute. So you're slowly building up that habit, that consistency with yourself. You're building that integrity that you're going to do the things you said you're going to do. And I liked what you said that it's better to do something than to do nothing. Something that I see people do with writing down their food plan a day in advance is writing down all of the things they're going to eat, even if it's not healthy. So if you want to have a hamburger and fries and then a steak and a salad, you're going to put all of that on there and then you eat that. So you're following through with your plan. You're building that consistency with your plan. And then as you get better at that, you can start taking out the unhealthy things like little bits at a time and then start adding the healthy things back in. Maybe you can start planning the times you'll eat. And so if you want to build in intermittent fasting, you can do that instead of eating all day or three meals a day or six meals a day or whatever. And another thing that I wanted to mention is to plan on feeling like you're not going to want to do it. This happens to me a lot, especially when I'm trying to follow through on my calendar. That's one of the big things I'm working on is putting something on my calendar. And then when I get there, doing it even if I don't feel like doing it. That has been a struggle of mine for probably years. And now I'm I'm starting to get better at that. And the more progress I make with that, the better I feel about it, the more motivated I feel. And that's building that consistency to keep going. I'm curious about the interrelationship between what is the gray area between, say, overly ambitious goal setting or aims that we have versus things that are attainable, like almost quick wins that build momentum, right? Because sometimes I feel like I get stuck in a mentality where I'm in some chasm between really, really big, crazy goals. We started off talking about impossible goals and dreams, but then chunking it down into like, okay, we know that that big, crazy, scary dreams over there, but how do we break this down into manageable chunks that are maybe momentum builders? You know what I mean? Because I feel like I get stuck in the in-between sometimes where I'm like, am I making this too easy on myself? Is this not um, 
maybe that's my addiction to feeling like everything has to be stressful and like a lot of work to like make it worth it. That's my own belief system. But I guess my question is, yeah, but between the impossible crazy goal and the daily habits, how do we maintain the momentum and, and, and the will to keep going? I feel like sometimes we start walking up the side of that mountain and there's an inevitable moment or moments where we're like, oh my God, I don't know if I can do this. Well, the good news is that if you are thinking you can't do this, your brain is working perfectly fine. Nothing is wrong. <laughs> That's good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> Our brains are wired to keep us safe. And when we want to pursue these big impossible goals, our brain is immediately like, no, we can't do this. Hold on. Stop. Turn around. And it'll bring up all of these thoughts about why you can't do it and why it's too hard and why you should just do it later. This gray area between you know these lofty impossible goals and these daily incremental habits that sometimes we start to walk up the side of that proverbial mountain and we start you know getting higher and higher up the mountain and there's a point or maybe even several points I've experienced where it's like, oh my God, I don't know if I can do this because the chasm between the ultimate aim or the ultimate goal and then those daily habits, sometimes that chasm feels so far apart. Got it. Okay. So when you get to the point where it feels too big, that's the point where you need to break it down into the literally the next step. So if the next step is let's go with weight loss, put on your shoes to go outside. That's literally the next step. Then you write that down on your to-do list and then you schedule that in your calendar. With impossible goals, it's about listing out exactly what you're going to do, planning to fail at it and putting it in your calendar, just planning to do it. And then when you get to that point, just do it. It seems kind of counterintuitive that you just do it. But when you break it down enough and you put it on your calendar and you see it there and you just follow through, it's really that easy. Or maybe not easy, but it's that simple. Does that help? For sure it does. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is I was looking over an ebook that we wrote for the pandemic period of time, and it's called From Chaos to Calm. And one of the points in that book is to just do it. And I remember reflecting on it thinking, gosh, like, is this too harsh of a phrase to use during this time when sometimes it feels hard to just do something? What is your perspective on that? Because I think I alternate between wanting to push people because I feel like if we can get beyond some of our, our self limits, our limiting beliefs, our resistance, like that's where the progress happens. This whole show is about getting outside your comfort zone. It's a, such a big belief system of ours. But also, as all three of us have struggled with things like anxiety, perhaps depression as well. I've struggled with my body image a lot over time. I've also needed to add in some gentleness to my self-talk as well as how I coach other people. Because sometimes I feel like if we just say, well, just do it, it's might be interpreted as like, I don't care if you're struggling today, you just need to do it anyways. And sometimes that's appropriate, but sometimes that might be so harsh that someone begins to beat themselves up. So do you feel like there's a time and a place for that phrase, Colleen? Yeah, it's kind of... You do have to be careful about when you use it, but you do have to re remember that people like to make things complicated. We love to overcomplicate literally everything. That's why we overthink things. So sometimes the simplest thing to do is ask somebody, well, why aren't you doing that? 
And then they'll, come, they'll give you all of their reasons. And then you can dig into the thoughts that are actually behind those and why they're feeling the way they're feeling, which is pretty much always a thought. And then you can point out to them that your thinking is causing your feelings on this. So if you're thinking that it's going to be hard and that you can't do it, then you're going to feel terrible and you're not going to do it. And those are people who may be a little bit more sensitive to the, we'll just do it phrase. But again, it's it's not meant to be accusatory. It's it's meant to be something that that just tells them it's it's really that simple. You don't need to overthink things, even though we love doing it and I love doing it. I have to remind myself not to overthink things all the time. It's great. I want to touch on something that was kind of like a little nugget earlier that has been a little bug in my brain since the beginning of this podcast is you mentioned diabetes, Colleen, and also um, you said something about a low-carb diet. I'm assuming you're talking about keto. We're massive nutrition geeks here on the show. Whitney actually has an amazing book about vegan keto, a recipe book, and she's been researching it for a while. So I'm curious, when you were referencing one of your methodologies for working with your diabetes, um, are, are, we, are we talking about keto? Are you in the keto thing? How's that going? Like, I, I want to get into the nutrition geek category a little bit more here for all of us. Well, when I started, I did start at straight keto, so 20 net carbs below. But as I kept going through it, I realized that my body needs a little bit more. And so I stay usually below 50 net carbs. My only straight sugar are rolls of Smarties if my blood sugar is not behaving well. And it's not that big of a, a deal with it. So I don't do straight 20 net carb keto. I do more less than 50 total. That's what I did too. And I cannot imagine doing 20 net carbs total. <laughs> Maybe that's because on the vegan keto diet, it might be a little trickier given uh, that you obviously are, are not eating meat and dairy, which seem to be staples of the general keto diet. But gosh, like I think even when I felt strict, I probably averaged around 50 net carbs. And uh, now that I'm not doing keto, that seems so restrictive. And it felt like something I really enjoy doing. So I, I hesitate to even use the word restrictive because I got really lenient during COVID, even though my book came out this year. It came out like right before the pandemic. <laughs> but I found that speaking of being gentle with yourself, since keto wasn't a necessity for me, it was more of a preference that I let it go during this time. And my brain keeps going back to wanting to start to track a little bit more and be more mindful because it felt really good. As I mentioned, have struggled with body image challenges and disordered eating and have experimented with a lot of different ways of eating. And I felt like keto was actually empowering for me, not because it was restrictive, but because it gave me some guidelines and I felt really good doing it, like physically energized. I felt more vibrant. I, I just felt content versus right now, to be honest, when, when I started eating more carbohydrates, I actually don't feel that great. I don't feel as vibrant. I don't feel as energized. I feel completely off in some ways, but emotionally, it's felt easier and gentler for me to not track what I'm eating all the time. So it's fascinating how we kind of fluctuate through what feels good for us if we have that choice. And in your case, Colleen, I'm sure being diabetic, sometimes 
you might not feel like you have a choice. Would that be an accurate way? Like because of your body's needs, like you kind of have to be stricter? It's yes and no. And for the listeners, you have to understand that when I started keto before then, I didn't think that I could ever not have carbs. So I went through college with a terrible diet. I would have tortillas made basically just from flour and butter, and that would be my meal. And I had no idea what I was doing to my blood sugar. So I I sometimes wish, although it's kind of mean, that everybody should be able to know what a high blood sugar feels like, because that's what you're basically doing to your body whenever you eat really high amounts of carbs, even if your pancreas will cover it. So for me in particular, I don't feel like I'm restricted from anything because it's a personal choice. I have a built-in way to see what affects my blood sugar and how. I wear a continuous glucose monitor and it shows my blood sugars every five minutes on my insulin pump. And so if I have, even if it's like a little piece of chocolate, if I have a little piece of chocolate, I can instantly see that feedback on my CGM. So when I can see what different foods do to my blood sugar, it's less of a, I can't have this and more of a, I choose not to because I know what it will do to me. And when I went through that elimination diet, I found out that strawberries actually stall my weight loss, which is weirdest thing ever. They're super low on the GI, so it doesn't make any sense that they would do this. But because I had both that feedback from my pump and from the scale, I was able to cut it out without any drama. And my coworkers, my full-time job, when I was going into the office, because right now we're all working from home, I was known as the person who makes bacon every day in the microwave and didn't share. And since that elimination diet, I found that I can't stomach bacon anymore. It just tastes wrong in my mouth. So when I go into food decisions, it's not about what I can't have and more what I choose to have. I love that mentality. And I think that's especially coming from a struggle with disordered eating, you know, even the word restricted and like getting too strict about anything can actually trigger some of these old negative thought patterns. And so whenever I focused more on the long-term benefits of certain foods and when I feel like I'm thriving, what I feel like I'm truly craving and looking at it for all of the positives versus looking at food in a negative perspective, I felt mentally better about that. And I think that there's so much food fear and food shame that goes on. And many of us grow up like being confused and terrified of what to put in our bodies. And then some people just want to rebel against those feelings. So they eat whatever they want. And they're not even listening to their body's signals, which I think in your case, Colleen, it's very literal. Like you're able to see exactly what happens, which to me feels like a gift because I actually have developed a lot of food sensitivities over my life. And even though they're frustrating, I sneeze or my skin will itch or my stomach gets really upset. I've actually started to look at those as like my body literally telling me what feels good versus what doesn't. And it's helped me navigate. For example, when I did an elimination diet back in 2010, I think, I did an anti-candida cleanse because I suspected maybe I was struggling with that. And I just was curious how I would feel if I really eliminated certain foods. That's how I discovered that I was really sensitive to almonds. And I had no idea before that because my body was like saying all of these things, but I was putting 
weird food combinations into my body that I couldn't even decipher what made me feel good versus what made me feel bad. And to your point, like strawberries, Colleen, like most people think strawberries are great, but they're not great for everybody. Just like almonds, almonds in general are wonderful food. And it's sad to me that I can't tolerate them. And the only way I could really get clear was to eliminate it out of my diet and notice how much my body was trying to tell me that those didn't feel right. What's funny is that when I went into the elimination diet, I was worried that I would be sensitive to nut flours. And then I turned out to be super sensitive to the processed meats, the bacon, and then the strawberry. And because I went in prepared to like have that drama about the nut flours, I was not expecting the bacon, but there wasn't any drama because I'd already prepared for it just in a different way. And so when I told people on Facebook, they're like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And or you can try like the Costco version. It's uh, not processed. And I'm like, okay, but I don't want to because I don't want to taste that off feeling again because I know what, how it feels now, especially when it's not masked. Yeah, this is such an important part, I think, of you know the healing process. Right now, in the middle of healing from a surgery, I was in a recent accident and I've noticed that my desire for sugar recently has tanked, absolutely tanked. And I'm not really sad about it. I have some chocolate, for instance. I usually have a little stash here at the house in, in the cupboard in the kitchen of one or two chocolate bars or maybe you know a little package of cookies or something. And I've noticed that during the recovery period, intuitively, my body does not want anything really sugary. It doesn't want chocolate. It doesn't want ice cream. And in fact, thinking about it, which is so opposite of, I suppose, when I'm not in the healing mode or my body isn't physically repairing itself, I'm the first guy in the chocolate aisle just buying bars and taking them home. So it is interesting how at different points in our life, depending on, I think, what our what our goal is, our intention is, our body's wisdom and listening to that. I'm grateful because I know that if I were to eat sugar right now, it's going to inflame my body. It's sugar is inflammatory. So during the healing process, I think my body is like, dude, we don't we don't need any extra inflammation right now. We're good. So for me, my current thing is like, I just, I have no craving for sugar and it's absolutely fascinating to observe it. Yeah. I used to be unable to pass a donut box in the kitchen and without picking one up. So if you told college me that I would be able to walk past my uh, work break room without even looking at the box of Top Pot Donuts, then she would have laughed at you. (laughs) It's so funny what we learn from all of this experience. Well, it's almost like it's not necessarily, I don't know, for me that the temptation doesn't go away, but I think I know or I have an expectation of how it's going to affect me. And then the conversation becomes, do I trade the momentary temporary pleasure of taste I'm going to receive for what I think it may do to my body afterward, right? Like that's my current conversation is I know I could go for the chocolate, but I have a feeling that if I were to, my body would be like, dude, we were trying to tell you not to do that, man. And you didn't listen. That's why I love having my CGM because I will instantly see that spike in my blood sugar if I have a donut. Now I can I can I can actually smell the sugar in things and it will put me off. It's actually kind of amazing. I feel amazed by that as well and it it's so interesting whenever you do any sort of cleanse or break or detox whatever you want to call it. 
it really does give you an opportunity to tune into your body and, and become clear about what you want versus what you don't want. And your senses get heightened, you know, and, you know, you start to recognize the difference between a need versus a want and what feels fulfilling versus not. For example, when I did the keto diet really strictly, I realized I just don't want fruit. I've, I've actually never been that into fruit that I can recall, but I was conditioned into thinking that fruit was good for me and it was healthy. And so I was eating it for those reasons, but I don't miss fruit at all. And even though I'm not doing keto right now, as of the time of this recording, I don't ever seek out fruit. <laughs> like maybe I'll have a, an orange slice every once in a while. And I'm not even consciously avoiding it at this time. It just doesn't appeal to me. And I remember the same thing when I first started eating a plant-based diet. I realized that I didn't really miss a lot of foods, especially seafood. Growing up, I would like force myself to eat seafood because my family ate it and because like, I don't know, I just wanted to experiment. But like I've never thought about seafood since going plant-based in 2003. And I think it's fascinating when you change the way that you do things, you recognize what your actual motivation for having something was. And also when you change what you're doing and other people see it, they suddenly have all these opinions about it. Yes. And they, like you were saying, they'll say, oh, I'm so sorry you can't eat this. And again, like if you feel like it, you can let them know that you're choosing not to and you feel better not having it at all. And it shows you other people's perceptions around food. And it's actually a really interesting social experience. We are going to take a brief break because I promised you at the beginning of this episode that I was going to tell you more about the consistency code. We launched this in 2019, right before the new year and had a, an incredible time with our clients and our friends and everyone who enrolled. For you, we have a very special offer, as Whitney mentioned. It's a four-week video coaching program. The segments are pre-recorded, and the whole crux of the consistency code and why Whitney and I decided to put this together and have been promoting it, and I am extending it to you for the special offer, is because it's going to help you really find direction and develop the consistency that you need to stick with healthy, fulfilling habits. We found over and over again, not only for ourselves, but for the people we work with, you can have all of the aims and the goals and the habits that you want. But if it's not consistent and you're not integrating it into your daily practice in a way that is sustainable, the compound benefits won't be there. So by being consistent, you start to prioritize your self-care, you start to improve your time management, you eventually boost your self-confidence. It's really about just creating the self-discipline and the focus that you need to stick with healthy, fulfilling habits in 2021 and way beyond. This is not just about a new year thing. This is about really relandscaping consistent metrics in your life and frameworks that help you stick to what you say you're going to do, right? So consistency, we know it's the key to everything from losing weight, gaining physical or mental strength, making more mindful, healthy food choices, getting more energy in your life, and just being more present. We talk a lot about presence and mindfulness. And the consistency code in four weeks really helps you just anchor all of those things in. So we mentioned it's on special right now. It's 50 bucks. It ends on November 30th, and we really would love for you to join us for this program because we really think it's going to give you the tools, the frameworks, the, perspective, the perspectives that you need 
to really just gain that higher level of consistency in your life. You can get this course at the special price of just $50, which is 25% of what it normally costs. Plus, you get a whole slew of other amazing programs in there as a bonus. You can sign up for this at bundle.wellevator.com. That's spelled B-U-N-D-L-E dot W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R dot com. Or just go to wellevator.com, find the show notes for this episode, find the consistency code. We'll make it super easy for you. We promise. If you can't find it, just send us a message. We'll point you in the right direction. Make sure to do that before it ends on November 30th. What's really interesting with type 1 diabetics, especially, is that they feel like they can't give up carbs or they can't reduce their carbs because of what their doctors told them. And I think this is actually a huge problem with the dietitians out there. I grew up going to a diabetes camp and the dietitians are required to teach the FDA, I think it's either the FDA or the ADA's like food guidelines which has always been the, the, the food pyramid, which turned into the, um, my plate. And the problem with that is they're advocating basically half of your plate be carbs. And at camp, the lunches are 70 carbs for one meal. And that's if you have the recommended amount of food. These kids are between the ages of 6 and 13. If they see a bowl of tater tots, they're going to grab a handful and not count them. <laughs> and when you grow up like that, which is what I did, I grew up learning that I should be able to eat whatever I want as long as I gave insulin for it. But I didn't get to learn how my body actually felt when I was eating that. And I only figured that out after I went low carb. I remember a time in college when I was in our engineering buildings trying to stay present for a group project. And my blood sugar was in the 300s and it was not coming down. I felt sick to my stomach and I didn't want to eat anything. So I just didn't eat for the rest of the day. But I told my group members that I had to go home because my blood sugar wasn't coming down. I didn't really know what else to do about it. I couldn't concentrate. And that was basically my reality for from when I was diagnosed up until the point where I went to switch to low carb is I was, I was experiencing this brain fog, this awful... This awful feeling of of being high, but that was my normal because I didn't know anything else, and I was scared to give up the carbs at first. I researched keto, especially in like the Reddit communities. I researched it for months before I took the plunge because I was scared that I was going to do something wrong. I was scared I was going to mess myself up. It's like there's a certain point though, maybe where you see the conventional wisdom that is being portrayed, whether it's as you mentioned the American Dietetic Association or the Food and Drug Administration whatever these sort of governing bodies, it seems that in our society, we're kind of encouraged to default to the quote experts, right? And I, I think there are absolutely certain aspects of life. Certainly right now, none of us are virologists. And so listening to people who are virologists is probably a great thing to do during this COVID period. But I just think food-wise, you having the willingness to seek out something that was not quote endorsed by a governing body was in opposition to all of the rhetoric and the direction you had received as a diabetic your entire life, it takes a hell of a lot of courage, right? To look at something and go, the way that everyone else is telling me to do it and these governing bodies, these quote experts, I'm going to do something totally radically different and trust that, okay, I don't know if I'm going to hurt myself. It may be good. It may be bad. I don't know, but I'm going to do it anyway. 
that's really freaking courageous, right? When you have all this quote evidence or or you know peer reviewed studies saying you need to do it one way and you do it the opposite way. Like to me, there's a rebelliousness, I suppose, in that approach that I embrace and that I love and that I just I don't know for some reason I got fired up by that. Yeah, when you put it like that, that it's rebellious. I guess in a way it kind of is, but it was again back to that personal level of disgust. I was I. I was not seeing anything change. It was getting worse and worse. I even had a personal trainer around that time. And I, well, (laughs) it didn't help that the gym in question had a uh, smoothie bar that also sold pizza and that I would get a smoothie after my workout because my blood sugar was dropping. But I didn't understand, I guess, at the the deepest level that carbs are what controls my um, blood sugar. I mean, I knew that at some level, but I didn't realize that if you take out the carbs, then my blood sugars would, would pretty much normalize and I would reduce my insulin levels. But the fact that nobody ever told me that before, and I had to find out about it on Reddit and other non, I guess, verified sources, it was kind of rebellious <laughs> now that you mention it. <laughs> But I think for all of us here, you know, we all have our own specific healing journeys and I know so many of our listeners do. And it really just, I think, comes down to the individual experience. You know, we often talk on the podcast here about we are not necessarily big fans of formulas or one size fits all type of approaches when it comes to life mastery or healing or nutrition or evolution. It it does seem that there is so much in the gray in terms of the nuances of what works for each one of our individual bodies. And I think it's certainly, you know, looking at what works for what stage of life. I mean, I'm sort of in a stage now where, as I mentioned during this healing process, I'm noticing that my eating habits are changing. And I'm curious if those eating habits are going to continue after, you know, the the post-surgical healing process. But I guess in all of this, it, it just inspires me, Colleen, your approach to your personal health saying, okay, I'm going to do something totally unconventional. It might be crazy. I might get judged for it. I may even hurt myself, which that in itself could be enough to convince someone not to do things, right? The possibility of pain. But to push past it, it kind of brings us back to the beginning of this conversation of of the just do it mentality. I could hurt myself. This could bring pain into my life. But what if we do the thing and we get through the pain and on the other side of it is healing or growth? And Man, that that is a continual life practice, right? Where it's not just about one or two things or three things we get to push past that we're terrified of. But that is, to me, I think if you're on the path and you're committed to growth in your life, there's going to be a lot of situations that scare the hell out of us that we, we, we get that choice of whether to say yes to or no to. I'm glad you brought up what you did about it's different for everybody. Something I like saying is to take what works and leave the rest. So I'm a big proponent of of self-experimentation. I will 100% recommend that every type 1 diabetic tries a low-carb diet. But if it doesn't work for them, then I'm not going to tell them they have to keep doing it. The whole point of this is to find out what works for you. And that also translates to when when we're going after our big goals. Something that works for one business owner isn't going to work for another. That's why a lot of online courses don't or people don't feel like online courses get them the results that they want is because maybe it was built for some kind this one person and the per- this other person who bought it it's completely different so it's not going to work for them. I was working with a, a client who was in a mastermind for something and 
it was actually she was in a mastermind for marketing. And this coach's perspective on marketing was so contrary to hers that she felt like she was losing her magic. And so when when we talk when I when so when she talked to me about it, I told her, well, is any of this working for you? And she found a little bit and a little little bits and pieces of it that worked. And so I said, just focus on those. Focus on the parts that work, but leave the rest. It's a learning experience. You get to take from it what works for you. And if not all of it does, then don't try to force yourself. It's the same with what you eat. And a lot of that takes patience as well. I think the other side of all of this that makes it complex is we have been somewhat conditioned to believe there's such thing as a quick results. And I feel like when it comes to food, fitness, well-being, a lot of this stuff you need to experiment with not only consistently, but over a long period of, of time. And then tweaking it here and there, once you feel like you figured it out, you might still have some ways that you can optimize it a bit more. And I think one of the big reasons that people don't stick to a change is because they expect results to happen so quickly when there's really no way to predict how fast you will get results. Even like weight loss, for example, is a huge example. And then also, Colleen, as you're bringing up, I think like this graph of weight going up and down and all that. I remember when I was doing the keto diet, I did get some like big results really quickly that were encouraging. And then like I kind of hit a plateau and then like, Maybe at that plateau, I could have stopped. I think that was the common thing I would hear from people. People would say, well, keto isn't sustainable. And there were all these like ongoing reasons to not do keto. Whereas when I was researching it, uh, one of my favorite sources is Joseph Mercola. And his book just gave me all of this great information from a very scientific uh, doctor perspective of showing that it can be done long term and it can be very beneficial, but you have to put in the work for it. And you can't just expect to snap your fingers and get everything that you want after just like a few weeks or a few months. Yeah, I, I've lost, I think, 65-ish pounds, but that happened over the last five years. I gained all of that weight from the fourth grade up until I was 23. And it's taken pretty much five years to to even start to bring it all off. I have another 30-ish to go. So it's I know it's not going to fall off overnight. And that's part of the struggle, I guess. But it's also part of the triumph. When my plateau where I was at 170, 175 for a year and a half, I didn't go up. So I could have looked at that where I'm not losing any more weight, so something must be wrong. But instead, I looked at it as, well, I'm not gaining any more weight. I'm not gaining it back. So I must be doing something right. It just wasn't enough right to keep me going down. And that's when I did the elimination diet. Something that I get hung up with, and I'm curious how you both feel about this, is the balance between body acceptance of where we're at right now, how we look, how we feel in our body, and accepting ourselves as we are in the moment versus balancing that with a perhaps a weight goal or a number of pounds one would want to lose or perhaps a um, a certain look or feel in the body. Somewhere I get personally, especially right now that I'm, again, kind of post-surgery and I've been gaining some weight and some things have been happening to me, that balance between self-acceptance and pushing towards one's goals in terms of body image. You can't hate yourself thin. 
you can't hate yourself then. The more you judge yourself for where you are, the less likely you are to get anywhere better. You have to love yourself wherever you are. Even if you're not really at a place you want to be, as long as you love yourself now, that will help you move to a place where you can also love the thin version of you. It just goes back to you can't hate yourself thin. When I was at my highest weight, I absolutely hated it. But I never got anywhere until... Well, I never got anywhere until I started eating low carb, but that helped because once my weight started falling off, I was able to feel a lot better about myself. And that's continued. The thing that I think is the question is, how do we start to love ourselves if we've never really practiced it before? Because I feel like self-love is become this kind of colloquialism, especially on social media that gets thrown down of self-love Sundays and self-love tips. And I feel like a lot of the, and there's nothing wrong with these things, but some of the things that I see around self-love are like, take a bubble bath, do a spa day, go to the sauna, you know, buy a hammock for the backyard, stuff like this. But uh, like the deeper nitty gritty of self-love you're talking about, to me, feels like something that's more visceral and deep than, you know, again, a spa Sunday. It's like, we're talking about the kind of self-love that's like, can we love ourselves at our highest weight? Can we love ourselves when we feel weak and broken? Can we love ourselves when we feel like we've made a mistake in life? I mean, to me, it always feels very easy to love myself if everything's, quote, going right or going the way I want it to. But it's when the breakdowns, the challenges, the heartbreaks, the setbacks, the things that kind of look like maybe potential roadblocks for us, that's when I find it's really challenging to love myself. I'm still really working on it every single day. I think it has, when you're at that point where it's hard to love yourself like that, it's more about getting to a neutral place. So instead of, if, let's go back to the weight loss example, when I was at my highest weight, if I had focused on myself being fat and ugly and saying all these horrible things about myself, then I probably wouldn't have gotten anywhere. But the idea of finding something more neutral is going from I'm fat and I hate my body to I have a body. And then once you can kind of think that on purpose and then you think that on default, then you can move to stuff like I have a better body than I did before as you start losing weight. It's this idea of like bridge thoughts. So uh, going back to the coaching, the self-coaching model, if you have one thought where it's really negative and you're stuck in this unintentional model of of basically this cycle of awfulness and you want to get to the point where it's where everything is better, where you have great thoughts, where you are basically achieving all of the results, all the goals that you want. It's really difficult to jump from the negative thought to the positive thought without going through the middle where neutral is. So if in your example, you want to work on loving yourself, you have to figure out this bridge of thoughts, this thought ladder to get from where you feel terrible about yourself to where you feel good about yourself. And the gap between those is what Brooke Castillo calls the river of misery. Because when you're in it, you kind of feel miserable. Yeah, for sure. How do we endure it though? You know, as especially if we have like a model of never good enough, you know, always needing to strive for more. This is one of my personal belief systems. It's almost like the difference between intellectually grasping a subject and integrating it into your being. To me, it feels like there's a chasm there of, like I can intellectually know that I'm enough and that I'm worthy of love and I'm lovable as an example. But the intellectualization to me is kind of like 
sometimes feels light years away from actually integrating it into my being and my own personal perspective of who I actually am. Yeah, that's honestly at the point where I would get a coach. I basically binged Brooke Castillo's podcast, the Life Coach School podcast in a year and a half. And during that year and a half, I was kind of sort of doing the work that she talks about on the podcast. But what really changed was when I joined her, her self-coaching scholars program. And that includes coaching every week. And so the way that I've basically exploded my personal growth this year has been because I have a coach. It may not be the same coach every week, but I get coaching every week to talk about all these things that I have problems with. I totally get where you're coming from with the intellectual versus integrating because that's it's the same way for me. Intellectually, I know that my thoughts cause my feelings, which cause my actions. But sometimes those thoughts just feel true. And I'm holding on to that feeling of trueness or that feeling of truth, even if I need to let it go and just let the facts be the facts. It's so amazing how much we can be empowered when we have that structure, you know, and I love hearing stories like this because it reminds me not only of the power of having a coach or anybody really to guide me through something. I mean, that could be a therapist, that could be a doctor, like somebody that has been immersed in this world for a long time and knows how to give you that guidance is so incredibly helpful. And it, it goes both ways. You know, I think that reminds me of why I do what I do. And we do what we do here on the podcast and um, talking to people like you, Colleen, running our programs. These stories just get me so excited because it feels good to give it as much as it is to receive it, you know, and knowing that each of us can benefit from having someone there to hold us accountable and help us pave this path and customize what it means to feel successful. And, and just hearing you and your success story that you've had with your coaching experience is, is so wonderful. And hopefully that inspires the listener as well to look into different ways that you can get support professionally. You know, we obviously have our courses here and have dabbled in, in private coaching but whoever it may be, it doesn't have to be any of the three of us talking today. It really is just about finding that right fit for you, the program that works for you as you're attesting to, Colleen. I mean, now I'm curious to check out everything that you've been talking about today because you just sound like it's changed your life. I am obsessed with Brooke Castillo and everything she does. <laughs> you know, we felt that way actually about Brendan Burchard, who is a big mentor to us for many years. And and currently, we're not feeling as in alignment with his teachings. And so that's another thing that I've learned over time is I'll go through different phases and have certain people. Sometimes it's a book author that I get really into. Like I love Brene Brown right now. I love Marion Williamson and Elizabeth Gilbert. And for a while, Wayne Dyer was like one of my favorites. And all these people that have impacted me just through reading a few of their books, or in some cases, listening to podcasts. And actually, Marion Williamson started a podcast that I've yet to listen to. So got to add that to my list. And it's just remarkable how much of an impact a single individual can have on our lives and, and help us shape our next path. I honestly wish I could remember the first time I listened to her podcast, to Brooke Castillo's podcast, but I can't. And that's really sad because it's changed my life so much. 
I've gone through that whole personal growth journey of that year and a half of binging it. And then now I'm coming up on a whole year inside Self-Coaching Scholars. And I've drunk the Kool-Aid so much that I'm getting, I'm going through her coach training starting in January. So it's really amazing how maybe one episode of something can change your life because you don't really know where these things are going to take you. Absolutely. I hope the word gets back to her. You know, I hope that she recognizes how much of a difference that she's made on your life. And I think that's another reminder for each of us to tell people how they've impacted us, whether it's leaving them a rave review somewhere of their podcast or sending them feedback. In fact, we were in, Jason and I were in a coaching program last year in 2019. And that was one of their big tips is you can actually create really amazing relationships with people simply by reaching out to them and letting them know how they've affected your life. And you know, maybe that'll lead to a partnership of some sort. But at the very least, I'm really such an advocate for giving that feedback. Like it could be a Yelp review for a restaurant you love. You know, I think it's something that we kind of don't recognize the power of. We don't always think it makes a difference when we tell someone or some or, you know, review something. But that not only helps the person in in understanding the difference that they're making, but it also helps anybody else. You know, like you're an incredible testament. Maybe somebody's listening to this episode because you showed up in a Google search or something as, you know, like reviews on this coaching program, right? And so I just think it it creates a huge domino effect in such a positive way. And I love that you've reminded me of that, Colleen. Yeah, you're welcome. And not just for people who run podcasts or restaurants, like you were saying with Yelp reviews, but also the people in your personal lives. So my manager at my full-time job has had a huge impact on me and my career. And I told him, I actually gave him a letter thanking him for his impact in my life. And he had never gotten something like that before. It really showed me the power of showing your gratitude, even for the people who you think know, they really don't. And just showing gratitude in general is like one of the best ways to shift out of a, a a negative mentality or a slump that you're in. And and actually, Colleen, I mean, I often will encourage people to write down like the best things that happened to them today. What are they grateful for? And you find yourself like privately documenting these highlights. And I think you could go another step beyond that and just tell somebody like, hey, that little thing you did, that phone call, that text message, that moment I saw you, seeing the video you made, like whatever example, just not just knowing that you're grateful, like acknowledging that within yourself, but taking it to the next level and sharing that with somebody else and helping them understand the impact they've made, then that passes on that joy to them, that gives them that gratitude. And it, it's kind of like paying it forward in a really beautiful way. I see that a lot when I reply to emails from people I follow, like bloggers and things like that. And it's funny because they will reply back and say how much they appreciated my email. And that will maybe start something and then I'll email them the next time they send an email and just keep kind of in, in light touch. It's like you were saying, you build relationships with people like that. Well, that was the thing actually that to me when Whitney introduced me to you, Colleen, as we are getting deeper and closer to the finish line, I feel here is that your email stood out so much because it was so well-written and so personal and you offered 
so many interesting perspectives, like valuable thoughts on like, here's what I want to bring to the podcast. Here's my perspective on things. I remember that email hitting me in such a way, even though you and I had not obviously met yet, it was just a referral through connection with Whitney. I thought, wow, this is a person I really want to have on the podcast because it was just so thoughtful and eloquent and intelligent and well-written. And even just that initial email was like, wow, this really stands out. It just does. I mean, it it was a tremendous first impression. (laughs) Well, thank you. I'm really glad for that feedback. I am a creative writer just in general. So honestly, when I write stuff like that, it doesn't feel special. So when I hear feedback like that, I really appreciate it. So thank you. Yeah, I think it's an awesome formula that will serve you well because it just it engenders an immediate connection. There's a warmth and a depth and a uniqueness to the way that you write. Again, even just from one email that it's like, this is, I don't know if she knows how effective this is, but it's really awesome. So this would normally be the time that we do a brand shout out. But today we are going to shout out ourselves which is not something we do very often. Technically, this episode is sponsored by us with our program, The Consistency Code. You've heard us mention it a few times during this episode. Wanted to remind you again, because you might have been off daydreaming, multitasking. You may not have sat down to really consider it. And so we wanted to let you know one last time to check out this incredible sale that we're part of. It is the plant-based bundle sale. We have our course, the consistency code in there. It's normally $195 to participate in this program, but it's only $50. Plus you get like $2,000 worth of other amazing programs. So if you're interested in the consistency code, as Jason so wonderfully described about halfway through this episode, we really encourage you to check it out. You can click through at bundle dot wellevator.com or go to the show notes section of wellevator.com, which if you've never visited before is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. We're always very mindful to spell it out for you because we know it's a made up word. And Jason is going to close out this little self-promotion with a song. What do you got for us, Jason? Better be even better than the one that you sang before, even though that was pretty good. I think there just needs to be like a good theme song here, right? It's like, the consistency code, Uh uh-uh, the consistency code. If you're young or you're old, gotta feel real bold. Whether it's hot or it's cold, the consistency code. You got them goals you want to do, but you don't know where to turn to. You got consistency code, Uh, consistency code, Uh uh-uh. Again, that's bundle.wellevator.com. Wow. You know, that reminded me a little of like Adam Sandler, Jason. And you did that all on the spot. You did not practice this. That was improv. I prepare nothing. Nothing. Wow. That's impressive. With that, Colleen, we want to send people to all of your amazing outlets out there. We mentioned the Medium articles that you had written, which I am just devouring these incredible articles that you've written on Medium. Like, I can't wait to just dive in and probably send you more emails of like, oh my God, this is amazing. I love this part. So we will link to all of Colleen's uh, incredible writing on Medium. Uh, Also her website, which is inspiredforward.com. You can find links to her great podcast, which is called This Is Type One. She's got some eBooks, a free Facebook group. You're up to a lot of good stuff in the world, Colleen. It's impressive what you got going on. But you know what? You're helping so many people in the process. and, And I hope you are on the receiving end of the kind of emails that you were talking about of people really giving you that direct feedback because your message is really unique. I think what you're doing is full of so much heart and authenticity. And 
we're just really grateful you took the time to be here on a podcast and give our listeners a ton of value too. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. And, you know, I wasn't expecting this to tie so nicely into the program that we've been revamping this year, the consistency code. And I'm grateful that we got to explore consistency from different angles and look at it from your perspective. You know what I mean? And one of the quotes that really stood out for me, which I'm going to use in our social media, is to acknowledge that, yes, I'm scared acknowledge that it's going to hurt, but do it anyways. And I think that's just such a powerful thing I want to reiterate here before we wrap up. And and it's giving me some food for thought too, because as I said, this is something that I have been reflecting a lot on. And I think it's okay for things to hurt. It's okay to do something despite some discomfort. That's really the big theme of our show. And I'm just very, very grateful that you put it in your own words. And I hope that that's resonated with the listener as well. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.